I'd like to welcome our audience to the National Association of African American Studies podcast. Uh, my name is Lemuel Berry. I'm the executive director of the National Association of African American Studies and Affiliates. Our guest for today is Dr. Trina L. Pelham, an MD who is a developmental behavior pediatrician. Her journey has been circuitous. At a very young age, she proclaimed her goal to be a pediatrician. She was very focused, really deviating from the plan. The path included graduating from the Philadelphia High School for Girls, Hampton Institute, which is now Hampton University, with a BA in biology, and Temple University Medical School, followed by a pediatric residency at St. Christopher's Hospital for Children. Unfortunately, plans became waylaid. In medical school, symptoms of multiple sclerosis manifested and derailed what was to be a straightforward course. Determined to hold into the dream, she completed fellowship training in a subspecialty that would be less physically demanding, developmental behavior pediatrics. But alas, symptoms of MS became too hard to overcome. Much to her dismay, she left practice due to disability. In the years that followed, she was a volunteer with the National MS Society, speaker group leader, ambassador, and trustee board member. As one of her interests is pediatric homeless health care, she was the pediatric consultant to Philadelphia Health Management Corporation, Healthcare for the Homeless. She was also very active at her church, St. Matthew AME, as a lay member, choir member, nurses unit physician supervisor, and church band percussionist. She also writes prose and poetry. She was a member of the Health Advisory Board for American Legacy Magazine. As we fast forward to March 2020, sensing a collective grief during the month of April, her daily Dr. Trina Post offers suggestions and support to have good mental health. How are you today, Dr. Dr. Pelham? I'm very fine, thank you, Dr. Barry. Well, I want to say on behalf of the National Association and all our affiliates uh, who actually be, will be hearing this uh, around the world, that we're very pleased to have you here to talk about mental health and other health issues that affect the Black community. I'd like to start off uh, with just, a, for me, easy questions, since you have to give all the response, uh, and talk a little bit about uh, how COVID has had an impact on the Black community. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. COVID has had a devastating effect on the Black community. And I want to go back to where we started with COVID-19. Before even in, in 2019, it was a mystery that affected some communities in China, as far as we know. Fast forward to the last day of December of that year, and we realized that it was going to affect more than China. And it continued to affect different countries manifesting in the United States in January and growing to be a, an overwhelming health problem. Early on, criteria were very strict who should be concerned about being affected by this devastating disease. And the criteria was, have you traveled 
particularly to Asia? Have you traveled out of the country? Have you been associated with anybody from Asia? And certain things that, yes, that might be true for some communities, particularly wealthy communities, white communities, and even in the black community might be some who have monies to do that, like those in Beverly Hills. But in general, for the, the 99% of us, we're not necessarily doing that travel. Therefore, we weren't initially considered when we came up with symptoms to the ER saying, we don't feel well. And so a lot of people were initially missed. The other thing is the American medical system has a history of inadequate, insensitive care for people of color, particularly black people. Um, as far back as enslavement, there was a doctor who was considered the father of obstetrics and gynecology who did experiments on enslaved women to, without anesthesia to evaluate their gynecological makeup and show that they don't really need anesthesia, cruelty. And then everybody knows about the Tuskegee experiment, which was an experiment in which people did not have consent, informed consent to understand that they were being used as for an experiment. So this is a history of American medical system. And unfortunately, there are people who do not know much about the communities that they're caring for when they're in training. I have worked with people who have said, I've learned a lot on these people as if he's in a laboratory or something, but this guy had no intention of staying in the community. Therefore, it's just a pass through. There, in, in no way, let me say in no way is this every doctor, of course not, but there's enough insensitivity that it was not high on the radar to say, hmm, we're seeing a lot of black people. Then a very wise woman posted, I saw a post from a nurse. What she noted is that when black people came to the ER, they say, I don't feel right. I don't feel right. And it they were sort of summarily dismissed. And what she noted was then they'd be back and they would be in dire, a dire situation in which they had to be intubated and ultimately died. And she said, you have to consider what the person is saying, the ethnicity, the diversity. And so thank you to her for raising that awareness. And then myself, re recall a gentleman who went to the ER once and they sent him home because he didn't feel right. He went twice and they sent him home because he didn't meet criteria, didn't feel right. He went the third time and after that unfortunately died. My response to that was, if you have a black man who has made his way to your emergency room, take it seriously because his wife has been trying to get him to go to the doctor for years, go to the ER and he's there once twice, don't miss the ball. So there's a need for sensitivity because as I said, because of the history, black people are not readily looking forward to going to the ER, being cared for in a situation that's strange. So then let us look at 
where we are when we started learning more about this infection because if people are honest and humble, the medical community, the scientific community is learning about this virus on the fly. There's, I mean, we're learning different things every day. And so there was a doctor who went to New York to help. He was from New York, New Hampshire. He's a white doctor. He went down to New Hampshire, but what he noted, people would come to the ER and one minute you're talking to them, the next minute they're gone. What he noted is we should be checking their pulse oximeter right away because that's their oxygenation. Because for some reason, people were adjusting to this loss of oxygenation and they were able to talk and interact with you. And then suddenly they were not. So this is, this is a free freebie to guess buy a low pulse oximeter is just like 10 to 20, 10 to $20 is as important as a thermometer right now, because as this gentleman noted, if you check that pulse oximeter on the regular, you, your oxygenation should be up between 96, hundred percent. If you notice it going down in the low nineties, in the eighties, in the seventies, get yourself to a hospital because it doesn't take long to go to 50 and at that point, you're going to be on an, a ventilator. Okay, let me go back to the, the track for Black people. Finally, as they began noticing that people may not have traveled outside of the country, people may not have interacted with people from Asia and started looking at the actual health of folks coming in and you're talking to them one minute and the next minute they're dying. The assessment of diversity was slow to come and it still is um, behind, but we re really began to notice that black people were dying from this disease at twice the rate of white people and the hospitalizations were higher. Now, initially, of course, there was the blame the victim because of um, obesity was considered to be a, a big risk factor. And yes, it is. Well, why might people be obese? Well, they live in food deserts where there's not good nutrition. Also, stress hormones lead to obesity. And there are many things that haven't been evaluated, but it was sort of like blame the victim, still not as compassionate as we need to be. We're getting better, but we need to move forward. Now, thank let's fast forward to this year or actually December of last year when a vaccine became available. Thank you. There was hope. But once again, looking at the Black community, there is this history with that which is not well tested being tested on Black people. And I, had, I actually had to speak to some people and say, no, you're not being tested. This vaccine has been evaluated in appropriate phase, phases of research. And so this is the real thing because people were not trusting it. And it's not just black people that aren't trusting it because there are 
30% of healthcare workers, providers that are not necessarily comfortable with taking the vaccine. But once again, they there was the insensitivity of, well, they don't trust it. Well, no, it's not like they don't trust it. They want you to explain, is this safe for me to take? And so as people see different people willing to take the vaccine here, because when people tell me they're not comfortable with that, I just tell them how excited I am to get it. And I did get my shot last Thursday, thank you. Not yesterday, but last Thursday. And looking forward to March the 31st when I get my second one. But I think people will trust if you look like you trust the vaccine. And I do trust this vaccine. I'm very excited that one of the developers of this messenger RNA vaccine is a black woman. And something I also would say to people who, when they were uncomfortable with this vaccine, I said, you know, this is probably the safest thing you've ever taken because as a person of my age, I remember standing in the line to get some pink liquid on the sugar cube, which was a live virus for polio. And I put it into my body. And then other vaccines I've taken are killed viruses. This is just the information to protect the body from the virus. And as that gets explained to people, I really see Black people really being willing to do it. Also, we're really comfortable if the providers are Black. In Philadelphia here, there's a wonderful consortium. It's called the Consortium of Black Doctors. They were in the forefront of getting people tested. It's led by a pediatric surgeon who put in her own money to start this up and they exponentially increased the testing of black citizens in Philadelphia. And they jumped to the forefront when the vaccine was available. They have clinics that you get appointments for and now they have some not needing a clinics and it's moving forward at a good rate in Philadelphia finally because this young lady takes the bull by the horns to use an, a banal expression and she's doing good work and I hope people do this but we need trust from the black community and that comes with getting cared for by people that look like you or at least you can sense they care about you so that was a long answer to your brief question. That's okay. But we know we talk about uh, mental health and um, in many of the uh, disenfranchised communities and definitely many black communities are dealing with issues. Uh, I was just talking to a colleague yesterday about the, um, the water condition in Flint, Michigan, which has still not been resolved uh, with all the lead poisoning and the impact it's having on uh, everyone who consumes the water. And now we have uh, COVID, uh, persons who are losing jobs or they've lost their job, uh, more people becoming homeless. And, uh, uh, and the mental part, you know, the, the, the impact it has on the family, uh, the parents uh, and the children. And, and, and what would you recommend or suggest that uh, persons consider how they address the challenges that are going, that they're dealing with now on a daily basis? Okay, not to be self-serving, 
But if people are on Facebook, I would first of all send them to posts from Dr. Trina from April of 2020 for the that month. And as some people who know me know, I am not a Facebook person. I was not a screen person, but being troubled by what I was sensing in the community as a collective grief, I said, something has to be done. Some of this education I have has to be of some use. So I posted some daily recommendations, first of all, to understand what we're going through, which is grieving, and then to try to keep our spirits up as much as possible. And I'm, of course, not the one very much. A lot of literature is coming out from psychology, today literature, and other aspects looking at the stress, anxiety, and depression associated with being sheltered in, um, socially distanced. And I will say something about social distancing. We are people who embrace skin touching as normal. And so a phrase developed called skin hunger because we've not had hugs and handshakes and skin touching for the long time. The body is upset about that. The body is lacking and longing for that. And so behaviors, physical aspects affect your mind, which also affects your spirit. And so that that's the first step, as I said, look at the post from Dr. Trina from last April, but very seriously, at the end of every post, because some people, isolation is not is not normal for people. And in isolation, many people unfortunately get to think about, sadly, ending, thinking about ending their lives or doing themselves harm. They're drinking, they're doing increased drugs like opioids or meth or something. And so that needs help. And so I listed the um, phone numbers for um, the suicide line and for the medical information line. And the recent webcast that I found is called betterhelp.org, which is at the end of my most recent post, which I posted on March the 11th, which can you believe it? It was of this year, it was a year. I will be honest with you. I was one of the optimistic, uninformed ones who said, oh, two weeks will shut down, we'll be good. Maybe four weeks at the most. And here we are, well past a year. And that's not normal for, particularly for our seniors to be alone, to not interact with their families, for children to sit and look at a screen because they, no matter how much they complain, they look forward to seeing the teacher every day and hearing good reports from the teacher and getting that pat on the shoulder from the teacher and seeing their friends on the schoolyard. And for seniors more in high school and stuff, seeing their loved ones, their interests, love interests and their friends and just because they, they really don't wanna be validated by their parents. They wanna be validated by their peers. 
So this abnormal existence that we're dealing with is causing a lot of, as I said, anxiety, stress, and depression. And we have to be prepared to deal with it now and in the past because some people also are concerned about a post-traumatic stress event that might deal because doctors will very speak, doctors and other health professionals do not go through their studies to pronounce several people dead in one day. And that's what has happened with this virus. It's been traumatic. Nobody got inducted, nobody was drafted, nobody went through boot camp except for the medical training, the nursing training, the therapy training. But suddenly you had to be prepared to tolerate that and they had to separate themselves from their families in an effort not to take home horrible diseases. They saw colleagues die. They themselves might have been at risk of dying. And the other mental health piece, which certainly will have to be investigated, this little virus, yes, it's a respiratory virus, severe respiratory acute, severe respiratory, severe acute respiratory syndrome. That's what SARS, that's the other name for it, COVID-19. And this is number two. But yes, it's respiratory, that's its entryway. But what we know is it affects the cardiovascular system. And we also know some of the symptoms are neurologic. The loss of taste and smell indicates something went on in the brain. So when you when the brain is attacked by a foreign, foreign invader, there's always also risk for other mental health things. So there's a lot, uh, still a lot to study and learn about the mental health aspects of this. You know, I was, I was curious because you referenced children on a couple occasions. And um, uh, we do know that the uh, suicide rate has increased among youngsters and, uh, during, the, during COVID. And what would you see or say to parents as far as, um, what, or what maybe I should say, what signs would you look for in your child uh, that might uh, maybe give you the impression that the child is having uh, mental health issues and you wanna, you know, you wanna intercede or before it gets to the point where he or she uh, might consider suicide. Are there if any your telltale, child, telltale signs out there? Yes. If your child seems to be losing interest in something that was dear to them, let's say they were a musician or a poet or something, and suddenly they're not interested in that, they lock themselves in their room. Or the opposite, if they become severely agitated and are always, because young children in particular, they know something isn't right, but all they can do is fuss about it and just be irritated about it. And any such things as that, you can say, can we talk? Tell me how you're feeling. And even in prevention, just ask your child, how was your day today? They're gonna say, particularly if the tweens, eh, don't be offended, but let them know that you are available to them. That's the most important thing and let them know that 
this is not normal and you accept it. If they hear that, that this is not normal and their feelings are, well, are if you validate their feelings, it's likely that they will come and talk to you when they don't, when they're at the depths and let them know and ask them, don't be afraid to ask, have you thought about hurting yourself? Have you thought about hurting somebody else? Open that door. And if you're honest with that, your children trust you if you've been a good parent. Great, great. Well, I hope some of our listeners, all of our listeners who have children or those who don't have children but are around uh, children, uh, take heed to your words of advice uh, so we can uh, assist those who are are struggling during these crazy times that we're dealing with with COVID. Um, I have uh, an easy question. I know we're running out of time here. But uh, I can answer this question and, and I don't have to worry about what you're thinking uh, because I don't know anything about it. But could you give me in a nutshell what would be the general day-to-day operation of a developmental behavior pediatrician? Okay. Because I read a lot into that. All right. Yes, we take care of a, a lot of disability, a lot of problems in pediatrics. Very specifically, children who have developmental disabilities such as autism, ADHD, cerebral palsy. From the behavior standpoint, there's the oppositional with defiant child. There's a child with obsessive compulsive disorder. There's a child who is grieving from a loss of a parent or a grandparent very well. So we have to be ready for anything. And yes, we look at the development from when they were teeny weenies to, because we also investigate whether their problem is that they can't see, they can't hear, or they can't, or learning problem, learning difficulties. Is there a specific learning disability? So that's what we do. We, the day-to-day is, there is no routine. It's just what's coming in the door today. Well, it really but sounds, it's a great specialty. Well, it's, it sounds like it. You know, you um, uh, the one thing I, I say to people that the worst thing in the world, I think, or one of the worst things is waking up in the morning and saying, I got to go to work. But I can, <laughs> see, I can see in this case, if you're dealing with different youngsters who have different problems and makes your day challenging, but also uh, very inspiring to be able to assist the, the youngsters get through that. Uh, uh, we have just a moment, and uh, you reference um, when we're talking about uh, blacks uh, be willing to take the uh, the vaccine, and also there was a reference to uh, black medical students. Would you have an idea of maybe what percentage of uh, I'll say persons of color, not only black but Hispanic, Asian, who actually are training to become developmental behavior pediatricians? Oh, that's very small. That's a point something, a point zero something for be- developmental behavioral pediatrics, mm-hmm. a very small subspecialty in general, and particularly for persons of color is very small. It needs to be larger, as does every aspect of medicine. Mm-hmm. We need to enlarge the numbers. And something that was heartening to me recently, I heard that the numbers of people deciding or applying to medical school increased significantly 
with what they saw with what young people saw going on last year Mm -hmm. in the medical field. So, but yeah, it's, I don't have specific numbers, but just because I know who's I've been there, I know people are still involved. The numbers are much too low. And, and what type of preparation uh, would you recommend? I would say of a student who is actually a junior senior in, in high school, who's thinking about entering the medical profession and for whatever reason is thinking about going in that direction as a specialty. Are there, are there academic programs or internships or um, shadowing physicians, uh, any experiences out there that would help them get a feel for the profession before they actually enroll in that, in that such a program? Right. Well, any, person who's interested in medicine in general should shadow a doctor before they right it's just a wonderful thing just and ask your own pediatrician or somebody if you can or your parents doctor if you can just hang out with them for a day and then and uh, and do that again in college and in medical school you will spend more time in mental health rotations such as psychiatry, psychology, and neurology that will prepare you for developmental behavioral pediatrics. And I will say it's a newer, I did, when I did my fellowship, it was pretty much a newer, newish specialty because a three-year, for a three-year fellowship, because when I was in medical school, there were people who were calling themselves developmental pediatricians, but they had done a year of, and the, and the behavioral didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. So it's still growing. Great. Well, it appears that we've run out of time. Uh, I want to thank you again on behalf of the National Association of African-American Studies for giving up your valuable time to not only uh, interact with myself, but also our audience. And I would encourage our audience to, um, to listen in uh, the, uh, uh, podcast will be aired on several networks and you'll have a chance to uh, listen to this interaction on several occasions. Thank you again, Dr. Pelham and have a great day. Thank you very much for having me.